What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in, checking out the Hustle the Most podcast. This is episode eight, and today we're going to talk about my first entrepreneurial experience. So being an entrepreneur is pretty scary because, you know, there's always some sort of risk involved, and we know that risk and assessing risk is definitely a learned behavior, right? We've seen it time and time again. There's actually a really cool group activity that we do in the design world called the Marshmallow Challenge. And as much as I wish it did, this challenge does not include eating a marshmallow, although it has happened. The idea is that you split a room uh, of people into teams, and then you give them all the same supplies. And the supplies are pretty simple. So it's basically 20 sticks of dry spaghetti, a yard of string, a yard of tape, and one marshmallow. And the goal is to create the tallest standing spaghetti tower with a marshmallow top after 18 minutes. And it has to be standing after 18 minutes. This is a really, really fun activity to facilitate as well as to watch on the outside, even to, to be a part of. I've done it several times and it's always, it's always interesting the way it comes out. So this exercise is really designed to look at prototyping, design, structure, teamwork, and communication. And I've done this with groups of kids that are five, 10 years old. I've also done this with groups of adults, professional adults. And across the board, kids crush the adults every time. Uh, it may not make complete sense as I'm talking about it, so let me explain to you why. These groups of adults consisting of designers, engineers, and even architects have years and years of experience, but it totally works against them. It's awesome. They spend the majority of time planning and assessing what will and what will not work and kind of kind of negotiating ideas amongst the group, they spend all their time assessing risk and failure. And here's the difference. Kids generally haven't been exposed to this much risk and failure. So naturally, their natural instinct is to just try it. And if it tumbles, they try it again. They fail over and over again. In the end, they proved to be way more successful than any teams of adults. I never realized how much fun this was to watch until I watched grown men and grown women just struggle. And when their tower topples, it is awesome to watch because there's little kids kind of sitting there like, oh, we did it. But in the meantime, you have these people that are paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year that can't beat a group of little kids in this challenge. And it really is because we spend so much time thinking about failure and thinking about things that won't work instead of just trying them. We just instantly go to that, well, that will never work because, and this is totally a learned behavior, 100% learned. There's definitely a cool connection between the marshmallow challenge and how I approached recording records when I was first learning to play the drums. Let me jump into it real quick and explain to you kind of how the things kind of correlate. So my best friends when I was growing up, Brandon, who we had on a couple episodes, uh, my buddy Eric, we decided to start our first band, right? And I use the term band in the loosest sense of the word possible. Uh, this was our first real band that actually had a name. We had actual songs that had names. And we had talked a little bit about this band in the end of episode six. The band we started was called Jive. And it was pretty awful. But at the time, I think we were probably pretty awesome. We thought we were awesome. And we didn't know anything about being in a band. We were just some kids that ended up getting instruments together because we were all friends. You know, your friends get instruments and you get instruments too. And next thing you know, you're in a band. So 
This was like 1991, and the Nirvana Nevermind record had just came out. Grunge was all the rage, and ironically, Brandon had met this kid named Dan Hosey, who lived not too far from his new neighborhood that he lived in. And he played guitar and sang. Uh, he was in this band called Melancholy Buzz. And it was a Flint band, and they used to play these basement shows in Flint for their friends and kind of whoever else would show up. It was kind of weird. I mean, I, I went to a few of them, and it was actually really cool. I say it's weird, but it's actually really cool. But I was 14 years old. It was just a whole different thing. This was my first real live and up-close band experience. These dudes would play, and someone would start this little, like, basement mosh push pit, and eventually someone would end up going through uh, a wall. <laughs> it was actually pretty awesome. And these guys recorded, Melancholy Buzz recorded a live cassette, and they released it, and it was called Live from the Buzzment. I think Brandon and I talked about that tape for a long time. Like, in our heads, it was a huge release that people we actually knew recorded a record and released it on their own. It was their own original music. It was like the coolest thing ever. Anyway, Dan and Brandon were talking one day about how he and I had been playing together and we're kind of starting a band. And our friend Chris was going to be our bass player. But Brandon, kind of like you mentioned earlier, Chris had bought a bass and never really learned to play it. So we needed someone else that was actually going to play. So we decided to have Dan come over and play. You know, he was a few years older than us, but he had all this band experience. And, you know, he was in a band that was playing out. We were playing shows. They recorded this tape. It was awesome. We thought it was really cool. I still remember him showing up in the garage uh, for the first time. He had a, a 212 crate combo guitar amp, and he was going to play bass out of this thing. Uh, if you don't know anything about speakers or, or amps, it's not a big deal. Basically, it's an amp you play music out of. Plug it in, turn it up, there it goes. So... Uh, up until this time, like I'd never really played with a bass player. I don't know if Brandon ever played one either. It was just Brandon and Eric and I until then. And then actually Dan, when he came over, he plugged in his bass. And it was like almost like my whole life changed. I don't know if you ever had these pivotal moments that something just comes to light. It was so live sounding. And his bass had all this low end. And he could actually play it. Like it was awesome. It was so cool. Brandon and I were both very much like in the early stages of learning our instruments. And so we were still kind of new at it. We were so stoked to be playing with someone who was a little bit more seasoned than us. This was my first rhythm section experience. Uh, and as a drummer, it was, it was awesome. It was completely life-changing. I don't actually remember us having a discussion with Dan about him joining the band. Uh, it was one of those things where it was more like, when we were done, he was like, okay, when are we going to play next? And we just kind of went with it. And that's just how it went. We actually started writing. We actually started writing songs right away, and we had no idea what we were doing. We're just a bunch of kids in the garage just making noise, and someone would have this idea, and we would all start playing it, and then it would kind of be called a song. Um, we had horrible song names. I remember one song was called Kravitz because it sounded like a Lenny Kravitz song. One song was called Moody at one point, named after a kid that we knew named Tim Moody, who actually went on to become an amazing guitar player in this weird Viking metal band that I can't remember the name of, but one of these days I'll figure it out and maybe bring it back up. But we had pretty, you know, pretty limited ability, so our songs were pretty terrible. And, and I think that's how you learn, though, right? You, you start out small, doing what you can do, try to play above your skill level, and eventually you play better songs, or you're able to at least play better. So Jive eventually wrote a handful of songs, and we decided that other people had to hear our band. 
we had to share these songs with the world. So we prepared to record our first cassette. It's like pivotal moment, right? Most people, I think, would just go to a studio and record your songs. But when you're 14 and you're broke, you just have to use kind of what you have. We're not talking like boombox, but we did a little one better than that. But I remember um, when I said before that, you know, when you're poor, you learn to get creative. Uh, the local music store that we had all bought all of our stuff at, all our guitar strings, drum heads, drumsticks was called Bogner's. And our friend Dan was friends with the owner, Andy. And he let us borrow all of this recording gear. I say Andy, it's probably Andy and Mark, right? So Mark Hudson, amazing dude. Eventually we ended up recording songs with him years later, but he at the time loaned us all this gear and it was like five or six mic stands and cables and a four track tape recorder. We lugged all this gear over to my dad's house and set it up in the garage and we started tracking. It was pretty crazy. Within a year, I had gotten a set of drums, saw my first live basement show, including Kid Going Through the Wall, started a band, got a bass player, wrote songs, and now I was recording a cassette, which I would sell to the world. It was going to be awesome. So now we're in the recording process. It was pretty cool. I had no idea how it all worked. I just played the drums and they recorded me playing. People listening may not know this, but uh, when you're recording a record, the first thing that gets laid down on 99.9% of the bands that you're listening to today are the drums. Any rock band, metal band, punk band, whatever band, like it's always drums first and it totally sets the stage for the rest of the recording. For me, being 14, ignorance completely bliss. There was absolutely no pressure on me. I was just a kid playing the drums on some silly songs that my buddies and I wrote in my garage. So we did the drums, then we did the bass, then we did both guitars, and then it was time to do vocals. We never had a singer. We, Dan and I had wrote some lyrics at one point that never were sang out loud. We didn't have a PA and we didn't have any money. We could barely afford instruments, so we definitely didn't have anything to sing out of at practice. If we would have had something, it would have been, I'm sure, an old bass amp or something, but we didn't even have that. So we had written these lyrics, and this was going to be the first time that these were going to be uh, in the light of day, <laughs> heard by the naked ear, whatever you want to call it. And I had never sang anything before. I wasn't a singer. like I was barely a drummer. And so, of course, this was going to be a train wreck. So what happened was he and I sat down in front of each other, both had microphones in our hands, and we just let the vocals fly. We laughed a lot just trying to sing, not only sing these songs, they were pretty ridiculous lyrics, but we were singing them face to face, which was just very odd. One of the first songs we did was called Your Mom Drives a Bus, and it was written about our other friend Eric, whose mom drove a bus for one of the school districts in Flint. This is a kind of a new awkward experience for me, not only just singing, but, you know, singing directly to someone in their face. I just picture this Aerosmith side by side, same microphone kind of thing. It wasn't quite that awkward, but it was, it was pretty weird. So we got through all the vocals. We had a recording. The release was called Dog Boy, named after an article that we saw in the Inquirer about a boy that was born with a dog face. This is the level of of awesomeness that we're dealing with here at 14, 15, 16 years old. We only had five songs to record, so those were the gems, of course, that were going to land on the tape. The cassette tape had two sides, and some local bands, I think, would just leave the other side blank, or maybe they put the same songs on there. 
putting the same songs in there was probably a good idea. But we had this other idea. So we actually decided that we were going to put the same five songs on the opposite side of the tape, but we were going to record them backwards. So <laughs> the four-track recorder that we had had this play and reverse option. So we just took the songs and recorded them to another tape in reverse. Like this was so funny to us. Other people I don't think liked it so much. We actually had a few people that came to me and Eric and some other people that were telling us they had taken their car into Duke's car stereo shop, which is like this shop in Flint, because they thought something was wrong with the tape player in their car. Like the cars had this automatic flip. So when one side was done, it would just automatically start playing the other side. So when it flipped to play the other side, it was playing, but all the songs were backwards and people were freaking out. Like the first time we heard this, we died laughing. We thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Of course, you know, it's probably just funny to us, but we were 14, so we didn't really care that much. We actually dubbed these tapes. And I, I think, I don't think we dubbed them at a place. I seem to remember us dubbing them on our own, like dual cassette boom boxes. We actually sold or created 80 tapes. And then we sold 80 tapes. I think we sold all we had. And these tapes were kind of like the white stickered, uh, nothing fancy, nothing written on them. They're actually leftover Melancholy Buzz tapes, I think, that Dan had from the live at the Buzzment recordings. I'll have to check with him on that to double check my facts on that one, but I think that was the case. The, uh, the jackets were these color photocopied collage type graphic of the Dog Boy story from the Inquirer. We even put our own parental advisory sticker on the front. And I know as I'm explaining it, it may sound pretty legit. Photocopies, parental advisory. That's like what I buy in the store. This was not anything like that. It didn't look legit in any way, but it was ours. We created it. It was a thing. It's funny thinking back, we had these tapes. We didn't really play shows or anything that, that often. And we played a couple, but we never had anywhere to sell them. So we were just selling them at school. We would literally throw them in our backpacks and just hawk them to our friends at school. And we all went to different schools in the area. So if you know anything about Flint area schools, we had Grand Blanc, Clio, Carmen, Southwestern, all covered, which are four of the pretty big schools in the area. And I think after people buying it and then taping it for other people, it eventually made its way around to a few hundred people. You know, this was us. We were official entrepreneurs releasing our first product that we created and we were going to sell them to the world. That's what we did. We had 80 tapes. We sold 80 tapes. We were pseudo famous. This kind of relates a little bit back to the spaghetti challenge. We did not care about risk. We were not caring about who would like it. We were writing songs. We were just trying them, throwing them out in the world. If they fell down and collapsed, we would just write more and try again. Like it just was that easy. Uh, you know, ignorance is bliss. We just had no, no care in the world about being judged or selling records it just didn't matter it just didn't matter eventually as all things do when you're 14 15 jive faded out and we started doing other things and i eventually ended up actually joining dan's other band the melancholy buzz band we wrote some songs recorded the tape sold them around school we played a bunch of shows uh, a bunch of different venues around town around flint uh, including my first live on the air radio show this was pretty sweet this was actually a this was in the basement of Central High School, which was the WFBE, and we played live on the air. It was it was pretty sweet. But you know, all that time, Brandon and Eric and I were always really good friends, and 
and Melancholy Buzz was something I did. It was fun. But, you know, I grew up with Eric and Brandon, so we were always still hanging out together. And we were always doing stuff, you know, skateboarding, playing music. And we would drive down to see whoever's playing at St. Andrews or the shelter or whatever. And eventually when the Melancholy Buzz wore off, you know, we kind of decided to start up a new thing, which was like basically like starting Jive again. But we actually did this one without Dan Hosey, who was in Melancholy Buzz. We ended up getting a different Dan in the band. We just swapped Dan's pretty much. It was a Dan swap. And uh, we said this new band we did, it was called Spit. And it was cool. We, we started something new and different and with people that we grew up with. You know, it's, it's different. And we all had a few years of playing under our belts and we had all gotten together. And it was like almost like an entirely new band. It was like going forward in time or something where everyone now knew how to play their instruments and we could actually converse a little bit about musical ideas uh, without getting frustrated. It was, it was really cool. Around that time, I actually spent countless hours every day in my garage playing my drums. Music and drumming definitely didn't come easy to me. <laughs> there are people in this world that I know personally that can pick up any instrument and be great at it immediately. That was 100% not me. Like I had to work for it. I had to work so hard all the time. I practiced every day for years. It's, it sounds exhausting and it completely was, but you know, it'd be like negative 20 in my garage. We live in Michigan. It's cold, you know, it's snowing outside, ice everywhere. And I would be in there with this little heater, just banging away. My feet would be freezing. It'd be like little ice blocks. I have to move the heater down by my feet just to try to keep my feet from like freezing as they're sitting there on those, on the pedals and stuff. In the summer, it would literally be the same thing, except the exact opposite. It's like 100 degrees outside, probably 125 in the garage. And I would be out there just sweating away, like withering away. Sometimes I'd have people out there playing with me. A lot of times it was just me by myself. Thinking about this really brings up a good point about training for something or working toward a goal. That road is often a pretty lonely road. It's strange because the only one that can do the work is you, but everyone else will see and notice the results. It's kind of a strange catch-22, I guess. It's sometimes sad, but it's also gratifying at times. Like, I didn't feel like I was getting any better as a drummer. I was just in there playing every day and every day. And so gradually, I guess I did get better, but I didn't really notice until someone told me, it was like, man, you've been practicing. And that felt so good because I felt like I'd put in so many hours. I didn't feel like I was getting better. I was the same dude when I walked in as the same dude when I walked out. Didn't feel like I was doing anything different. And for someone to notice it and tell me that they thought I was getting better, I just felt on top of the world. It was, it was awesome. It was such a great feeling. Put in the work and you get results. That's how it goes, I guess. So Spit was a fun band and maybe the most fun. Let me just clarify. Spit was probably the most fun I've ever had playing in any band. There's something about that time that was so pure, being so unaware of anything else going on around you, and just being in the moment and playing together. We grew up together and we all had tons and tons of experience being each other's friends and just being around each other. So it was awesome just to connect on one more thing. Like we were not afraid to fail. We just kept the train moving at all times. We played what we liked and we were completely unapologetic about it. Spit was like us starting all over again and really the beginning of us understanding the music business in some form or another. I would say that Spit was probably like a jumping off point for me personally when I started to really understand what it meant to add value to something. Drumming and understanding songs and songwriting was a new skill that I found out later 
was pretty in demand and eventually would lead me down this crazy path of like a fee-for-service model and having the ability to live off my craft. It's pretty cool. What did I really learn about being in a band with these guys? Um, you know, this is where I really started understanding networking and showing up and then doing more. This is the start of me kind of going down this path of being a professional drummer and touring the world. It kind of all stems back to me being asked to join Melancholy Buzz. If I didn't work hard, practice and show up, that probably would have never happened. So basically what I'm saying is I guess I owe my entire music career to Dan Hosey from Melancholy Buzz for the opportunity of joining his band back in, I don't know, 1994 maybe? I think that 95% of the jobs and gigs that I've gotten in the world are based on who I know. It's all about who you know. Some of the best guitar players you have never heard of are guys that spend all their time with their heads down honing their craft and never come up for air. Greatest guitar player in the world that you've never heard of and you'll probably never meet. If you want to get out there and succeed, you have to do it all. It's kind of like creating a product. If you make a thing, like that's great. Now you have to make more of them and package them to figure out how to sell them. Sometimes showing up with a thing is just not enough. You have to do more. For me, I think the lesson of the day is ignorance is bliss. I've said it a few times. The best times that I had playing music were in my garage where I wasn't worried about writing specific types of songs or how many records we would sell or how big a tour was going to be. It was pure, simple, and fun, and it was the absolute best. That's all I got for this one. There was a lot of words and a little bit of time. As always, thank you for tuning in. Check out the Hustle the Most podcast. This was episode eight. Check out more stories, photos, and connect with me at hustlethemost.com. If you're listening to this on iTunes, give us a like, give us a share, give us a review. We'll see you on the next one.